0: A few years ago, a friend of mine showed me a list of lost property that was handed in to a British rail depot, a list of things that had been left on their trains. At the top of the list, to my complete astonishment, was, wait for it, a human brain. Uh, Apparently, it was left on the train by a medical student who took it on an away day. I suppose you might call that the ultimate in absent-mindedness. Well, well, you know, they don't get any better than that, so uh, you better enjoy it. Uh, Quite apart from the brain, the list made for interesting reading. Also on the list was a pair of stuffed gerbils, a glass, a motorcycle and a wooden leg. And the mind boggles to think if the same person left them all. (laughs) Well, such absent-mindedness. By contrast, I'd like to encourage you this evening to use your mind and to engage in in a small exercise with me. I wonder if you could uh, do this for me now. Just put your mind to this question. Here's the question. Do you think you're a successful person? And I'm not asking you if you've been successful in the past or if you think you will be sometime in the future. But right now, at this moment in time, do you think you're successful? I mean, do you think you're, you know, as successful as a dentist or something like that? (laughs) And and if we're not honest, um, if we're honest, then there'll be a range of answers among us this evening. There'll be some people who'll be fairly confident that they are successful. There'll be others who've been put down so often that their confidence is rock bottom and they'll be saying, no, no, I don't think I am successful and I don't think others would say that I'm successful either. And then I guess most of us will be hovering somewhere in the middle. Of course, the real issue is this. What would you constitute success as far as you're concerned? Well, before us tonight, in in a story that Jesus told, uh, either on the sheet or in the Bible, there is a man who from every point of view would be considered a success success. And yet astonishingly, from God's viewpoint, he was a dismal failure. Look at line 20 of uh, chapter 12 of Luke. Line 20, God said to him, just those two words, You fool. It's not that he didn't use his brain, he thought about everything. He was a brilliant businessman. Uh, we'll call him tonight, Cecil Barnes, uh, because he was successful and he built Barnes, Cecil Barnes. Uh, I told you it didn't get any better. Well, looking at, looking at Cecil success, Barnes, I'd imagine we'd all be agreed he was successful. But devastatingly, while he thought about almost everything, he didn't think about the most important thing in life. It's, very, it's a very striking story. Did you notice it when it was being read? And of course, it had to be. Uh, you see, if you've got the Bible open, you'll see that in the first 12 lines of this chapter, Jesus is talking about eternity. And as we look at these words, I'm sure you'll agree that the, the things Jesus spoke about should have, should have left people riveted, hanging on his every word. If you haven't got the Bible open, then just listen in. In chapter 12 and line 1, we're told that Jesus was teaching a crowd of thousands. I don't know how many people are here tonight, maybe four, four, five hundred. There, would have been, there were thousands listening to him as he spoke. And as we read on, we see that he was teaching them about the most important matters anyone can ever consider, matters of life and death, eternity, heaven and hell. And listen to what he says in line two. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. It's a bit like Maximus in Gladiator. Do you remember this film from a few years ago, Gladiator? What a huge film. Great moments, aren't there, in this film. Do you remember watching it? There's the great speech in the Colosseum in Rome. As the hero Maximus is face-to-face with the evil emperor, my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, (laughs) loyal servant to the true true emperor, Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I shall have my vengeance in this life or the next. It is a terrific speech. (laughs) It's got absolutely nothing to do with this talk, I've just always wanted to do it to a big crowd. It's a great speech. However, there is one line that is well worth remembering. When Maximus says this, what we do in time echoes in eternity. What we do in time... Echoes in eternity. And that is something of what Jesus is saying here. Speaking of a day in the future, he said again, line two, there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. And what you've whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. Imagine that. Every secret thought out in the open. Everything you've said about others shouted from the rooftops. Every scheming thought blurted out so that the whole world knows. It is terrifying. There's nothing hidden that one day won't be disclosed, said Jesus. And if that's not enough to make us listen, he went on to say in line 5, Fear him who after the killing of the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. It's a formidable comment. Whether we like it or not, it makes us sit up and listen. Jesus is talking about heaven and hell. And he says, get yourself right with the one who holds your future, your eternal destiny in your hands. You'd think the crowd would be on the edge of their seats as he was speaking, wouldn't you? Quaking in their boots, hanging on to Jesus' every word. And I guess most of them were, but we discover not all of them. Right in the middle of Jesus talking about eternity, we read in line 13... Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. It's remarkable, isn't it? Jesus has been talking about the end of time, about eternity and heaven and hell, and all the while, this man has been thinking about his inheritance and how he'll get his share and how he'll get his hands on his brother's share too. It's a remarkable moment, and yet it is totally believable because it happens all the time. People are more bothered about feathering their nests now they're making provision for their eternal home. I often meet people who are falling out over money. It's desperately sad. As I take funerals, I meet families who are ripped apart at the very moment that they ought to be supporting each other. Granny dies and there's an almighty scramble for her things. If she's written, written a will, people can test it. If she hasn't, all hell breaks loose. And that's what's going on here in this story. Brothers fighting over the family heirlooms. Jesus talking about heaven and hell and the destiny of the soul that all these buffoons can think about is granny's sideboard and the clock. And so, having been so rudely interrupted, Jesus says in line 15, watch out. See it there? Watch out in line 15 on the sheet. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions and then he tells them a story to illustrate that. And so you see, Jesus told this story, this, this harvest story, about Sir Cecil Barnes, to make this man think about what's really important. The story is all about a very successful farmer, a, a real entrepreneur, a, a guy who, who spotted an opportunity to make his fortune, and he was shrewd enough to grab it. He didn't let it go by. In city speak, he's one of the thousands who commute up from Surrey on the train to London. And he'd be sitting in his first-class compartment reading the Financial Times. And if you were in his carriage with him, your friend who would be with you would nudge you and say, "Now, now, you know that bloke. He's made a fortune, made an absolute fortune. He's no fool. Watch what he does. You do much worse than watching him." See, that's line 16. He told him this parable: the ground of a rich certain uh, rich man produced a good crop, and he thought to himself, "What shall I do? I've no place to store my crops." see that's the story it's harvest time and this man gets a better harvest than he was expecting a bumper crop being the brilliant businessman that he was he sat down and worked out exactly what he was going to do with it all uh, he, he worked on a, a, a business plan to maximise profits he, he understood all about supply and demand so he wasn't going to flood the market he considered how to make his yield tax efficient and having planned his strategy he said line 18 this is what I'll do I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and there I'll store all my grain and my goods. So before he knew it, he'd reached the point that every businessman dreams of. Total financial security. Don't you think that would be great to have that? And having planned and worked hard, line 19 arrives and he says to himself in line 19, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink and be merry. Not a monetary worry in the world. So no need to ever work again. He's made it and he retires at 45. He has enough money to do whatever he likes with, whenever he likes and as often as he likes. You see, look at him, look at Sir Cecil, and you'd say he hasn't got a care in the world. See, line 19, take life easy, eat, drink and be merry. Or oh, the Sunday Times would doubtless do a feature on him in the colour supplement entitled The Man Who Knew When To Stop. Uh, he's he's not commuting anymore, but all those still commuting up to London would sit on the train reading the article and they'd say, oh, very wise. Yeah, he's very wise. Uh, And the article tells us that now he's a member of two golf clubs and intends to get his handicap into single figures. He's got such a great life now. And that is what makes line 20 so brutal. God says, his creator says to him in line 20, do you see it there? You fool, this very night your life will be demanded of you. So you can picture the scene, can't you? He's at his retirement party, the guests have just gone. It's been a marvellous evening. Everyone congratulated him on such a brilliant career and those congratulations are still ringing in his ears. And when his wife retires to bed and he's in the drawing room and in his hand he's got a long cool glass of orange juice He's standing on the veranda in Surrey, looking out at the view. The congratulations from friends, still there. And there are holiday brochures on the coffee table, safaris and cruises and ski trips. And then he picks up the brochure for the Bentley that he'll take delivery of on Monday. And he says to himself, you've done it. You've retired early. You've plenty laid up for yourself for years and years and years. Take life easy. Eat, drink and... And suddenly there's a searing pain in his chest and he's dead before he hits the floor. See, that's verse 20. That's line 20. Oh, they they hold a memorial service for him in the city and the chairman will say what a loyal worker he was and the trade journal will say what an example he was and God will say what a fool he was. See, just two words in line 20, you fool. Well, it's a story, but it's not a fairy story. This is not Hollywood. See, I've taken funerals of men like this. Men just days away from their retirement, dropping dead. It's tragic. I'll never forget the words of a tearful widow as she said to me, he worked all his life for his dream retirement cottage in the Cotswolds. Uh, They'd even booked the removal van for the following week. But rather than standing at the bottom of his garden in the dream cottage in the Cotswolds, now he was standing in the presence of God. That's this story, isn't it? He's got all he ever wanted, but he's dead. And the money? Well, where did all the money go? That's the question at the end of line 20. Eventually it went to a son who was a worthless fellow, blew it all in five years and broke his mother's heart as he did so. So the money's gone, and so has what really mattered gone the eternal world that's been discussed in the first 12 lines of this chapter it's gone see when it came to eternity this man was poverty stricken so he's lost everything in this life and for eternity now what do you think Do you think that this story would have stopped the brothers writ in line 13 do you think that this would have made the man stop thinking about granny's clock i think it would that's why Jesus told it. To make you and me stop and think. To make us think about what really matters. To make us think about what makes a a really successful life. So what do you think? Do you think Sir Cecil Barnes was successful? Well, Jesus doesn't. And Jesus says his big mistake was living life as if God wasn't there. You see, it is the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. Uh, We don't know much about this man. We don't know whether he was a good husband or an adulterer. We don't know whether he was a good father to his kids or whether he beat them. Uh, What we do know is that he was not rich towards God. That's what it says at the end of line 21. Now, I don't doubt for one moment that if you stopped Sir Cecil in the street and said to him, do you believe in God, he'd have said, oh yes, yes, I do. But, but never mind what words came out of his mouth. Never mind that he went to church occasionally. In his heart he said, there is no God. He lived as if God doesn't exist. He had so much. But did he ever acknowledge that all he had came from God? Or did he only acknowledge it when he came at harvest? And you see, when you start to look closely at these words here in this parable, you see, life was all about him. Him. Just listen to the way he speaks. Lines 17 and 18 are dominated by the words me, my, and I. See, line 17, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones and I will store all my grain and my goods and I'll say to myself, you've plenty of things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Me, my, and I. He's totally wrapped up in himself. He was totally self-obsessed, wasn't he? Samuel Butler, the 19th century novelist, wrote of two thoroughly selfish people, Carlyle and Mrs. Carlyle. And he wrote this How good of God to allow Carlyle and Mrs. Carlyle to marry each other and so to make two people miserable instead of four. <laughs> some, of you, some of you will catch up in a moment. It's okay, just to do the sums. Selfish people ruin life. This guy was totally wrapped up in himself. He's got treasure, he's got leisure, he's got pleasure. But what does he do with the one who gave him those things? Didn't give God a second thought. And that is a huge problem. Taking from God but barely acknowledging him in our lives. Taking all the good gifts but, but barely giving him a second thought. Children are funny sometimes, aren't they? Uh, we've got three children, uh, twins who are uh, six uh, Susanna and Bethan, and, uh, and our youngest Joshua is three and a half. I, I loved it a few years ago when, when Joshua first discovered how to play peekaboo. Uh, the rules of the game are normally quite simple. You know, someone hides and then someone else tries to find them, and on being found, everybody shouts peekaboo. Uh, Joshua's rules were a little unconventional, to say the least. You see, when he was 18 months old, 18 month old Joshua didn't hide when we played peekaboo. He would just stand in the middle of the room with his hands over his eyes. And I would say, where's Joshua? And he'd giggle. Where's Joshua? More laughter. I can't see Joshua. Where's Joshua gone? Uncontrollable whoops of laughter from Joshua. And on it goes until he can stand it no longer when he whips his hands away from his eyes and he says, peekaboo, and he almost dies laughing. It's very funny. Well, it is for me anyway. (laughs) Uh, And it works because Joshua thinks that when he closes his eyes, I can't see him. Because he can't see me, he thinks I can't see him. It's silly, isn't it? But it's great fun because he's only a little boy. What is not so amusing is how adults play peekaboo with God. Because we can't see him, we think he's not there. But as much as we try to hide, we are going to meet him. So living as if he didn't exist is very foolish. We're going to meet him one day and we need to be ready for that day. And that day will creep up on us. I I can't believe I'm in my 40s already. I know you lot can believe it, but I can't believe it. It only seems like yesterday that I was in my mid-20s. And so I've got to admit it, I'm now in middle age. It's frightening. Middle age is such a frustrating time of life. Somebody describes it like this. Middle age is when you bend down to do up your shoelaces and ask, what else can I do while I'm down here? (laughs) Yeah, you've got it to come. You can laugh, yeah. And the next stage, of course, is old age. And you know the old rhyme about old age. To my dentures, I'm accustomed. To my deafness, I'm resigned. I can cope with my bifocals, but oh, I miss my mind. (laughs) Middle age, old age, it sort of creeps up on you. And, of course, there's nothing we can do to stop it. Oh sure, some try, may try to make cosmetic changes, an uplift here, a tuck there, a, a bit of liposuction, a, a, a Botox injection. We all try all sorts of things, but looking in the mirror, we have to face up to the fact that eventually gravity wins, doesn't it? As a friend of mine said, whatever we try, we'll all end up with a furniture problem, with our chest in our drawers. Just, there's nothing you can do about it. We're all heading in one direction. We can't stop the inevitable. We will come to face, face to face with God one day and he will judge us for living without him. And so there is a huge urgency in this passage. I, um, I, I took this off my, my wall in my study uh, today. It's uh, my old college photo uh, from when I was training to, to be a vicar. So uh, I, was, uh, I was 27 when uh, this was taken. Uh, I, I like this photo. It makes me look 15 years younger because I was 15 years younger. Um, LAUGHTER and, uh, and it's quite striking as I look through this. I haven't kept in touch with everybody. But you see, as I look through this list, I, I can see Harry here. Um, Harry died of motor neurons disease a couple of, da- a couple of uh, years ago. Uh, I can see uh, Jeff down in the corner here. He, he died on a hunting accident, uh, just climbing over a, a, a stile, and, and the gun went off, and, uh, uh, and that was it. And then there's Frank right in the middle. He, he had been an SAS man, then trained to be a vicar, and he died in the most... Um, mysterious circumstances and uh, his death was, was in the newspaper actually and, and then there's dear Doug up here and, and Doug, well he had a heart attack just uh, shortly after this photo was taken and here we all are, you see, smiling looking forward to the future years ahead of us so it seems we've been training for the last however many years three years to go and do this job here we are looking forward to it and, and now, well, they're only the ones I know about life is precious And it's frail. And it's fleeting. And the Bible says we're fools if we don't make provision for the day that we're going to meet God. Because Judgment Day is a reality. And so as I close, let me ask the question, how do we prepare for that day? Well, well that is exactly why Jesus came to planet Earth. Jesus came to die so that we could face that day with confidence. Uh, there's a gravestone in the United States with the inscription, I want to stand where you're standing. And, and then underneath, on, underneath that inscription uh, is the story of, well, one particular story during the American Civil War, a war that, as you know, was fought between the Yankees and the Confederates. And it tells the story of uh, one occasion when uh, a Yankee firing squad had, uh, had uh, some Confederates lined up in front of them. And a 19-year-old Yankee, as he put up his uh, gun and looked through the barrel of his gun about to shoot a confederate, he threw down the gun and marched off to his captain and he said, Captain, I I can't shoot that man. I know him. Uh, He he has a wife and children and I know that if I shoot him effectively, I end their lives as well. I I can't do it. And after a bit of discussion between this 19-year-old Yankee and, uh, and the captain... Uh, the Yankee marched over to the Confederate and he said to him, I want to stand where you're standing. And he took off the blindfold of the Confederate, he took the place of the Confederate in the firing squad, put on the blindfold, the Confederate went off back home to his family to live the rest of his life and moments later the Yankee was shot dead. I want to stand where you're standing. It's an amazing story. And it just begins to illustrate an even more amazing story of the Lord Jesus Christ because he loves you so much. He came down from heaven and he said, I want to stand where you're standing. You you may have ignored God all your life, but I love you. And it might be that you deserve to be punished by God, but I love you and I will take the punishment for you. I want to stand where you're standing. Isn't that amazing? Have you ever heard anything as amazing as that before? Isn't that good news? Jesus died to take our place, to take the punishment we deserve for living life as if God didn't exist. And look, if you were to die tonight, what would you say to God? Well, I really didn't think that it mattered that much. And he'll say, well, why do you think I sent Jesus to die? If it didn't matter very much, of course it matters. If you were to die tonight, uh, uh, what would you say to God? Will you say, well, I lived a decent life? Well, then won't he say to you, "Well, well, why did I send my son to die for you if you could make it to heaven that way? Jesus died because there is no other way to be right with God. But he died for you because he loves you. But we'll only take advantage of this offer of forgiveness and of eternal life if we'll face up to the fact that when we die, we will meet our maker. What a calamity to face God one day and hear him say, as he said to Sir Cecil Barnes, you fool. What a catastrophe to live as if life is all about possessions and money and fun and and then to hear God say, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded of you. Well, look. I don't know where you are on this. I'm so pleased you've come tonight. Maybe you've come as a guest. It's wonderful that you've come. And maybe you've just come as a student, and uh, you, you're looking as, uh, in, in, into whether this is the church you want to make as as your church. We're thrilled you've come. Maybe you've been coming for years. It's great you've come. But have you ever understood this for yourself? Uh, in, in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to start a, a course here called Open to Question. It will run for seven weeks on, on Tuesday evenings from the 17th of October. And uh, it will be a great opportunity for you to come and investigate more about Jesus. Is he really who he said he was? Can I, can I trust him? Is he somebody that, that, I, that I can put my trust in? Uh, when I ask the question that Tim asked earlier, and then what? Can Jesus answer that question, and then what? Well, it would be great if you uh, were would, uh, would to come along. And I would imagine that a number of you here are saying, I do want to get this sorted. I can see the urgency. I don't want to leave it any longer. Well, this is a safe place and a place where you won't be put under any pressure, where you can ask questions and hear some answers we trust as well. Open to question, it's called. And uh, I have put these on the, sh- on, the, on the chair. Somebody put them on the chairs for us as we came in. And you might like to grab one of these leaflets, one of these little uh, contact forms, and just... Uh, Fill it in, name and address, telephone number, email if you've got that. Tick, open to question and then we'll get back in touch with you and tell you more about the course. It'd be terrific if you did that. You could hand that to me on the way out. I'll be standing at the door. You can send it, put a stamp on it and send it through the post. Well, thanks very much for listening. It's great that you've come on this glorious harvest time. And we're going to sing a final song now. And it's a song which points us again to the cross of the Lord Jesus and to his amazing death for us, the thing that we've just been hearing about, so that we uh, can have forgiveness and eternal life. When I survey the wondrous cross,